Okay, y'all, I am back on Black Goddess Healing and Manifestation. I promised you all part two to our great panel discussion on sexuality. I see that you guys are enjoying it. I see a lot of people listening to the episode, and I hope that you uh, listen to this one as part two. Um, and I will be, this is not going to be the only episode I post this weekend. I'm actually posting another interview. Uh, it's a wonderful discussion with one of our panelists from the first uh, web series that we did. And so we're going to have Kia Amy Woods, who is an author, a speaker, an activist. And we just have just a really good dialogue, even some girl talk there, some talk on spirituality. It's just a great chat. So I I hope that you um, tune back in. If you're listening to this episode today, that you come back and hear that one as well. I have some exciting news and our next web series, our Dejembe web series, we will be doing it on Black is Art. And we have some artists that will be appearing, talking about uh, poetry and art. But we have a guest appearance, a celebrity appearance uh, by actress and hip hop artist Miriam uh, Hyman, a.k.a. Robin Hood from who is recognized as Dre from The Shy. So if you watch The Shy, Dre is going to be making an appearance. And that will be on February the 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And how you view it is on Queen V blog. So if you go to Facebook, Queen V, like victory, blog, or Delaware Hot 403.5, um, Delaware, the email, I guess I should say, sorry, not the email, the website is Delaware's with a S hot four zero three FM.com. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes for you all to join and listen to that. And I'll repeat this information again, probably in the next episode, but I just wanted to share that it's going to be so good. Um, we've been having a lot of fun, just you know, enjoying community, no matter what the topic is, it's about community, about like-minded people, alignment, love, and you feel spirit when you're in that atmosphere. Um, Yeah, so just wanted to share that and hope you enjoy part two. Let me give you forewarning. Part two jumps directly into some questions about feminine uh, cleaning. So (laughs) just trigger warning or, you know, just to give you forewarning um, that that's the continuation of that conversation. And it does go in, you know, a little bit deeper and other topics, but (sighs) okay. That being said, go ahead and listen. Thanks for coming back. Now, we did have a question from one of the viewers um, because we did start this um, uh, portion of questioning on cleansing and, you know, things of that sort. So um, she asks, uh, is it good for females to, to douche, to douche or not to douche? That is the question. Uh, sure. So uh, I'll, I'll certainly start with that. So uh, uh, douching has, um, has an interesting history. Um, uh, it is the simple answer is no, it is not necessary to douche. Um, 
the uh, the vulva is uh, fully capable of maintaining sexual health uh, through a healthy balanced diet and through adequate hydration and it is not only not necessary to douche many of the chemicals one uh, uses uh, even say hot water steams and so forth can actually damage the very delicate skin of the outside of the vagina the inside of the vulva so one should actually be very careful they have been linked to a variety of other health conditions from overuse uh, so from the medical perspective not a good idea. Um, there are a variety of claims out there. None of them have been evaluated by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Um, but generally, we advise against douching. Yeah, because I know it's been a craze of yoni steaming um, here lately. So I've been hearing about that. I actually went to a salon here in Delaware and had one done. So, you know, like I didn't know. Like, so pretty much they're stating that that's better than douching because it has a whole nother spiritual effect to it and things of that sort. Can you touch base on that? Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing to do? Sure. Well, I guess the first question would be, how did you like it? Was it, did it feel comfortable? Did it feel enjoyable? And uh, for the patient or as shy as you shared, you experienced one yourself. And I think something that feels, you know, warm and uh, has a steam element to it, I think is always going to feel good potentially. But I think you mentioned another piece, which was the spirituality and the holistic element of that. I, I think that's wonderful. I think being able to connect as, a, as Imani said as well before this, and Dr. G said, that, that uh, sense of touch and skin hunger, uh, that's really important. Sometimes that's really what we crave. It's not really the chemicals or the steam that, uh, that we put inside our genitalia. It's really about the rest of the experience. And we can get the rest of the experience with a, with a, safe, uh, with a safe massage, uh, uh, with, a, with, a, with a partner who is COVID-free in this case. We can get that from them. We can experience the spirituality by creating a, a, a space that is sensual, has nice music in it, uh, has touch involved in it. My only medical concern is to expose delicate areas of the body to, to chemicals, even to steam uh, and, to, uh, and to warm substances like that, whether it's stones or beads or steam, uh, in this case, uh, one has to be careful. Uh, but the rest of it, I, I certainly uh, encourage. And in addition to the yoni steam, there are the yoni eggs. I don't know if you all are familiar with that. So is that safe? But it, it's also a spiritual connection that people use it for. And when they do their yoga, they may have yoni eggs that they insert. You know, not being a not being a vulva owner myself, I can't speak to this from from personal experience. Uh, from the medical perspective, I think I would treat it just as anything else. If an object is uh, uh, is safe and comfortable, and most importantly st sterile and does not have bacteria on it, uh, that's probably the safer way to to use something. Typically, things that are medicated that have substances on them can alter, in this case, the very delicate balance of vaginal flora. So one has to be careful about that. But if something is sterile and doesn't have substances on it, uh, then I think from a medical perspective, I certainly would have no objection. Would be interested in hearing what Dr. Brown's experience has, has been with her uh, clients and patients as well. I'm sorry. I don't have any with that. Sorry about that. Maybe Imani does. I don't either. That's not my area of expertise either. <laughs> I think we're going to need a field trip, uh, uh, Shy, at some point. <laughs> we can arrange that. But yeah, so it's like a lot of things like online, like, I mean, with us all being at home during COVID, it's like you see so much stuff online. I mean, from Yoni steams and Yoni eggs to 
to cure BV. They're telling you to use boric acid suppositories and baking soda. There's so much stuff out there. And then you're like, okay, I don't know what to use. And if I use this, am I going to have to still go out to the doctors to get it fixed? So it's one of those things. So you're looking for alternatives opposed to, um, I guess, going to the GYN because a lot of people don't do it. Um, you know, like a lot of people don't, uh, you know, even like try to reach out to like get sexual therapy, you know, that's a thing, you know, so there's a lot that we're learning, I guess, because we're all behind closed doors right now during COVID. So there's a lot that we're learning and being exposed to that you normally would not be because we have a lot of time. We can research things. So like, and I had a question in regards to sexual therapy. What does that like, um, what does that like include? Like, what is that? You know, like, is it just like me telling, you know, like a therapist about like, okay, this is what happens or this is what's supposed to happen. Like, so how does that work? Amani, could you touch base on sexual therapy for me for, for a little? Sure. <laughs> um, sex therapy is basically like any type of therapy, but usually people that are sex therapists specialize in the sexuality piece. Um, I think at least my experience with people, there's a misconception that sex therapists are sex workers. So I just want to clarify that those are two very different um, forms of profession. People that are sex therapists center around more of the clinical work versus people that are sex workers kind of aid in like the physical aspects of the body and support in that way. Um, but sex therapy, uh, I know it can be kind of a broad thing, but it, you can go to a sex therapist if you're having any type of sexuality concern, but you um, honestly, when going to a sex therapist, you talk about, um, I guess, the other background pieces more so than you actually necessarily talk about <laughs> the sexuality piece. Because oftentimes people that are coming with certain sexuality issues, um, kind of touching back on like the topic of shame and things like that. So it's like looking at your uh, family history, um, how your family maybe navigated or approached sex, if there's any sexual um, abuse maybe in your background in any way and how that's affected like your body image and how you view sex um, and of course just trauma in general and even just looking at navigating sex as a black woman and the stigma that society has in kind of hyper-sexualizing black women and also not protecting black women when it comes to in general and then their sexuality as well so it can be a very broad a uh, range of things when you go to see a sex therapist, but usually people are going because they have a presenting sexuality issue, but they also help you explore maybe the um, deeper undercurrent things that could be contributing to your sexual um, problem. Amani, you brought up something kind of, I, I think that's important that I think maybe we could have defined in the beginning is would you say, or how would you define, is there, a, I know they intersect, but there's a difference, right? Between sexuality, sexual health, intimacy, sexual orientation, right? So can you maybe unfold that a little bit for our listeners that may think that sexuality is just one thing? Yes, um, I know sexuality is kind of, I guess, an umbrella term for a lot of things, but something that we learned in school is that sexuality is actually comprised of many of the things you talked about. So there's like five um, rings or like circles of sexuality. So you have sensuality, uh, sexual intimacy, sexual identity, re reproductive uh, and sexual health, and then as well as sexualization. So 
um, usually when you're looking at the broader term of sexuality, underneath that are all of those other things. Um, and a lot of what we talked about today is kind of in the sensuality and sexuality realm, but also, you know, um, supporting people with like sexual identity or kind of like things that Dr. Omar has been touching on. It's like the reproductive and sexual health as well as Dr. Brown with um, the sexualization as well. And she touched on sensuality and sexual intimacy. So when thinking about sexuality as a whole, you can kind of refer, always refer back to like those five specific things. Um, and I can repeat them once more. I hope I didn't say it too fast, but it's sensuality, sexual intimacy, sexual identity, reproduction and sexual health and sexualization. So those are the five rings of sexuality. So I, I have a, a question that I'm gonna um, reach out to Dr. Brown in regards um, to this question. Um, what are the common sexual attitudes and beliefs about women that play the role in a, a cis um, gender, uh, like, they play the role as cisgendered males? Um, what is the emotional connection? Like when you um, speak with your, your clients that, you know, uh, that have that type of lifestyle. So when you think about males, you tend to um, generalize uh, heterosexual males in terms of them looking at themselves as the provider or the person who's in control or the person who's in some way guiding the relationship. And that's not always the case with every male in his sexual encounter. Um, one of the things I learned is that men are pretty clear about why they are attracted to women. So it could be a physical attraction. And in the case of a physical attraction, that may not last unless there are emotional connections to it. So if um, the way in which she talks to him, he feels um, uh, a stronger sense of self or his, his self-esteem is boosted, he might um, look at her as a, uh, a good person. In other words, how she does her job, what she does in life, or even how she manages her children or her financial affairs. That could be attractive to a man. Um, it can also be that he has no intention of having a relationship because he's trying to get his sexual needs met. So in relationships, you can't pigeonhole and say all men or this is what men do. Men are like women in terms of their emotions. However, society has taught men that that's not what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to show their emotions. They're, for some reason, supposed to be strong. And that, that means that if you're not, or you cry, or you show emotion, that's more of a feminist characteristic. And in those cases, um, that's really biased in terms of people and people you meet and different situations. So sexual attitudes and beliefs can be things that we learn from our families. Um, like there are situations where uncles and brothers tell younger guys about how they're expected to meet women, how they're expected to engage. And some of that learned behavior can have an impact on a guy's relationship in the future. But men seem to be um, really focused on what they want and the type of person they're looking for. Not too much different from, from 
how women look at um, uh, partners and who they're interested in. There can be some uh, overshadowing of a, a, a woman feeling like a man is specifically for her. And if you listen to some of the contemporary music, and maybe not so contemporary, but the one that comes to mind for me is Keisha Cole's song about you need to let him go. Like he knows where he wants to be, and maybe it's not with you. And so that's something that are in relationships that people need to think about. It's not because you think he's all that. There has to be some give and take. There has to be some connection. And if his connection with the female is purely sexual, then it's not going to be a connection that's going to last. But if there's something else, something emotional that touches him as well as her, there's a good potential for relationships to develop. So those are some of the attitudes that men have. Yeah, all those stereotypes that you've heard about the names they call women. Yeah, there are men who look at women that way. But that's not every person. And when looking at people, you really need to get to know the person. And I don't know who said it. Somebody said communication. That is the biggest issue in relationships, that people are not comfortable talking about sex, talking about their feelings, talking about what they think about something. Like, I don't particularly like you when, when this happens. But if you don't talk about it, how does that other person know? that that's not something that you prefer. So yeah, I, I think attitudes and beliefs play a big role in our relationships and it's important to communicate and understand what folks are feeling. Yes, so the other question that we have, like um, even in, in both, I would, I'm gonna present it as in heterosexual and also transsexual men. Um, do you think that there's a major impact because of the absent or non-residential fathers in, in those uh, in the, the, those uh, individuals' lives? Like, does that impact how they react in relationships and create yeah, barriers? Some, yeah, so I did some research around this, and it appears that if, whether the man is in the child's life or not in the child's life, the stories that are told by the family members about that man tend to have an impact on his image on himself. So for example, um, if a man sees his father, who's not with him, um, as a quote unquote player, I'll use the slang term, and he sees him engaging with a lot of different women in the community, that sends a message to that young man that that's the image I need to be portraying. Sometimes if a young man doesn't see that, but they, he sees or he feels the hurt of the absence of his father, like dad says, I'm coming by, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we gonna shoot some hoops. And dad doesn't show. And this is repeated. That changes a man's image of who he wants to be as an individual. So this was some research I did back in 2010 with a young African American men between the ages of 18 and like 40. That's not really young, but between 18 and 40. And this was some of their honest feedback in terms of um, what they saw in their fathers who were not in their lives and how they felt about it. Now, since we're talking, um, we were touching base on males at this point, um, you know, like, you know, the myth of, let me just ask this question, going back to the medical side of things, like, you know, a lot of men don't go to the doctors, you know, and it's like a case where I don't know if they're afraid to know or they don't want to know, like, do any of you, uh, any of our panelists have any insight on that? 
Like, because a lot of men may not go to their like family physician um, or urologist. It's just like a lot of stigma behind that. Like, and that's why I think, well, in my personal opinion, opinion is because that's how a lot of STIs are sometimes spread because they're not going to check out. They're not paying attention to what's going on down there. So if anyone could touch base on that um, aspect of things, even birth control, because um, we did uh, find a post about vasectomies, how they can be reversed. You know, until men are ready to have kids, they can get a resectomy and then have a reverse later. So if anybody could touch. Oh, come on, come bit. on, give me some answers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. I think certainly from the provider perspective, from the from the doctor perspective, yes, men typically don't have high what we call high care seeking behavior. And uh, certainly men who consider themselves to be essentially either invulnerable to illness. And, and that includes, you know, essentially all the way from, you know, adolescence till, till, till you need your Medicare physical uh, until that time that uh, not a lot of folks will go in. Uh, the, the stereotype is that their, their partners will, will coax them uh, to, to go in to get seen. But that's not always the case. Uh, many men are quite concerned about their health and they, they do take, uh, they do want to have preventive care as well. I think it's a larger issue around what what masculinity and what strength really means. And I think it touches on what Dr. Brown, you were talking about before as well in terms of self-image. And if it's not considered a strong thing to do something, to go to the doctor, um, then of course, many men will not do that. People also assume that men talk about sex a lot. And that may be the case for some men, and they may well talk about sex a lot, but those conversations are, you know, tend to, I think, be not particularly deep. They tend not to, in fact, personalize it. So men who come in and who do discuss with me concerns that they're having about sexuality, about areas of their sexual needs, about their partner's sexual needs, what does that look like? They've not talked about that with other men. They might spend their times, you know, doing the stereotypical guy things, talking about sex, but not actually having deep conversations about about erectile dysfunction, about their partner's desire, about opening up their relationship, uh, about you know seeing other people. What does that look like? They don't typically have those discussions. So the medical office is not just a medical office; it's a healthcare team. And I think folks should ideally try to find a, a doctor a provider who is in tune with what they are looking for and ask them. Here's a here's a list of things I'd like to chat about. Are you comfortable with, with doing this? If not, could you refer me to somebody who, who might be? And virtually every physician is used to doing the consultation model, and, and I think we'd be happy to do that. Uh, but, I, but I think you're right. A lot of folks don't exhibit their care-seeking behavior, but we can leverage the community to do that. We can leverage the partners to do that. We can leverage the kids to do that sometimes as well. So we have all sorts of ways to, uh, to get it, folks. Vasectomy is an interesting point. Um, I would not use vasectomy as a method of reversible birth control. Um, it is deeply unfortunate that most birth control research and methods have focused on women. Um, I think there's two sides to that. One is from the medical perspective, it's easier in some ways to uh, prevent uh, ovulation in this case without necessarily affecting sex drive. That's one reason. The other thing I think is simply a sexist reason that women have just been, you know, it's easier to think about women as the recipients of and the owners of birth control than men. So, you know, on the one hand, women have been uh, targeted for using birth control. On the other hand, you know, uh, editorial comment here, men spend a lot of time trying to control women's bodies and their choices. So that does seem quite unfair. All, all that being said, male birth control is relatively limited. Of course, condoms, the ultimate reversible birth control, not incredibly effective for pregnancy prevention, but, you know, good for STD prevention. Um, vasectomy. 
not easy to reverse. I would not count on that. Essentially, the tube that carries sperm from the testicles uh, out, the, out the shaft to ejaculation, that tube is cut. And after it's cut, it's kind of burned a little bit at both ends so that it doesn't rejoin. And then it's even sometimes stitched off as well. So if you imagine undoing that and reconnecting things, it's not a whole lot of fun. And it's not easy to do. And your friendly urologist does not want to do a whole lot of those. So I would not use that. Can it be done? Sure. I would not routinely advocate for that being done. There are other better long-term methods of reversible birth control. Again, unfortunately, mostly for women, but they do exist uh, and they may be better than vasectomy for this. So follow-up question. So, and Shai mentioned after the, the age of 40, you know, we're approaching different age ranges. So these questions are a little bit different, right? When we go to the, to the doctors and address them. So what is more invasive, a tubal, is it tubal ligation, right? For tube, getting your tubes tied or having that procedure for your husband um, for the vasectomy. Um, and, and so, and when you consider those things, do they impact your, you know, libido? Are there going to be side effects to that? Can you speak a little bit more to that? Sure, absolutely. I think between vasectomy and tubal ligation, there's really no no uh, choice between which is the less invasive one. By far, vasectomy is less invasive. It can be done in the office. I've done them before in the office. You know, um, typically in the course of a typical you know exam uh, exam session, uh, forty to sixty minute uh, minutes in the office can we can do the vasectomy. Not that not that difficult to do. A tubal ligation for a woman is is an internal procedure. It requires going to the operating room, having anesthesia, uh, and it is a much more involved procedure. So certainly, in terms of complexity, no comparison between the two. Tubal ligation involves not only more surgical complexity, involves a potentially higher recovery time as well. The vasectomy requires much less of a recovery time. Um, in both cases, there is no uh, no effect generally on libido. So aside from the few days afterwards when one is recovering, libido is, is unaffected. Obviously, fertility is affected. That's the whole point uh, of contraception. Neither should be considered immediately reversible forms of contraception. I think the comparison for somebody looking for a reversible form of contraception would be uh, for a woman to have, for example, uh, an IUD, an intrauterine device placed, or an implant uh, placed these days. One of the brand names is Nexplanon that can go in the upper arm that can last for a while as well. Um, other other forms can be you know, used in uh, depot or the shorter acting ones such as the ring or the pill or, and so forth. But Vasectomy and tubal ligation, absolutely not to be considered reversible, and certainly one is more complex than the other. And my thoughts, Dr. Khan, um, and also a question from a, uh, a viewer. This probably is going to be a discussion later on um, about sperm preservation and egg preservation. Um, is it, does it make sense to reduce unwanted outcomes, right? Like abortion or miscarriages or not, you know, being ready, becoming a mother or a father when you're absolutely not ready. Should they consider um, egg preservation or sperm preservation? And then maybe look into doing other procedures to prevent pregnancy and later on come back to um, doing an I, mm -hmm. a, uh, artificial insemination or IVF treatment um, later on, if they are not ready, what, what are your thoughts on that? Does it make sense for someone to, to, to freeze their sperm or freeze their eggs, get on birth control or 
do some type of um, tubal ligation where they can reverse it and have babies? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Certainly. No, I think for preservation of fertility options, I think those are good options. Again, for people of a certain age, which let's define them as five years beyond where we currently are ourselves on the panel. Um, you know, I think always a, a good idea, certainly for egg preservation, especially as, um, as women age, at that point, the egg quality will probably decline. And it may be an option for a woman, let's just say, who's in her 40s, who might think, you know, I don't think I want to have children right now, not the right time, but I want to preserve the option. And at that point, certainly egg preservation uh, should be considered. Um, uh, same for sperm preservation for men who are contemplating a vasectomy, uh, and therefore they would like to preserve their sperm. I think that's certainly a, certainly a viable option to consider. Anything that presents, uh, Keanu, you mentioned a really good point about preventing abortions. Um, no, nobody, uh, you know, er everybody's uh, very keen on reducing unwanted pregnancies and un therefore unwanted terminations. So while preserving the choice that women have over their bodies, while preserving legal and safe options, we want to make sure that those legal and safe options are exercised as, as little as possible. So we, we certainly want to make sure, and that starts with healthy sexuality. Healthy sexuality and conversations are probably the single best uh, protector against unwanted pregnancy. After that, access to contraception, really f access to free contraception uh, or cost no barrier contraception for both men and women is critically important uh, to that discussion as well. And then of course, as you mentioned, we can get into other things as well, such as reversible uh, methods of pregnancy prevention. And since we mentioned, you know, this kind of the age connection, um, you know, kind of bouncing off of Kiana's question there, both preserving eggs, I, when I went to um, talk with my doctor, the OBGYN, she had mentioned, I said, I had made an assumption. I said, you know, I'm over 40. So of course, this is what I, you know, expect. And I'm not expecting to have any more children. And I went on the spiel and she said, no, that's not exactly the case. You know, you'd be surprised. Um, I see clients that are older than you that are still seeking to become parents. So she got me thinking because as a therapist that work with children with developmental disabilities, I've had certain statistics in my head, but she's saying now, no, things are a little bit different. The science is allowing us to go a little longer in terms of age range. Has that changed? Can women of a certain age still conceive naturally? Sure. So uh, great question, Dr. G. And I think two pieces to that. One is regarding the ability to conceive. And the second might be that what, what might one expect in terms of um, uh, genetic concern, genetic abnormalities that might be more prevalent the later the age of conception uh, might be. So in terms of conception, certainly, as long as one is, uh, uh, one is ovulating and your partner is producing sperm, one can conceive. And that's where one of the myths typically comes in. Folks assume that, well, I'm in early menopause, I'm after 40, it's going to be really tough to get pregnant. Well, it might be tougher to get pregnant at 40 than at, uh, you know, 25, but it, it can and does happen. And many cases, the requests we get for termination are not from the stereotypical so-called younger, irresponsible person. It is actually from an older person who is not being irresponsible. They just didn't know that they could get pregnant that easily. And so that's, that's a shame. No one wants to go through that at any point. And so that's where the knowledge piece comes in. So first of all, yes, ability to conceive can certainly last for quite a, quite a bit longer. We're living healthier, longer lives in general. Um, and so again, as, as we're continuing to be active in all ways, including sexually active, the ability to conceive will continue. Uh, 
the genetic aspects around conception, they are fairly individualized. So my uh, recommendation is always to seek perhaps a genetic consultation. Start off with your OB provider, whether your family physician or your OB-GYN, they might recommend genetics consult. And they might recommend sitting down and talking with a genetics consult nurse and saying, here's what I look like, here's what my, my partner looks like, here's their family history, we're going to conceive, but we're both over 40, over X, name your age, we'd like to get a risk profile, so to speak. And also, after we conceive, what will that look like? Can we get certain antenatal testing that will give us a risk profile of the developing fetus of the developing baby? What does that look like? And what will I do with that information? Will I do something different based on what information I get? The risk of certain conditions such as Down syndrome does increase with the, with the increased maternal age. So one has to take that into consideration. Uh, but all those very important questions. And But luckily, I think you're right. We do have increasing answers to those as, as time goes on. Yes, because I, I think that like um, from like uh, what we've heard through life, like if you got pregnant at a certain age, you could possibly have children with Down syndrome and things of that sort. So that's good that the conversation has changed. And, you know, um, science and medicine has, you know, proven that that's not always the case, because that was one of those things like, um, you know, the change of life babies. We heard about those, you know, like in, in our community, you heard about that a lot. So people having babies over 40, that was always like, oh, uh, you don't want to do that. It's like out of fear because you don't know what, what can happen. But now we know you can have a perfectly healthy baby. Yes. So it's um, we have about 30 minutes left to our, our conversation. So now we wanted to just jump into let's talk about sex. So if, if there's any information or any, uh, you know, subjects or, you know, uh, topics that you guys want to touch on, we welcome the panelists to just go ahead and chime in. Give us some information. We're waiting for more questions to come from our viewers. But this is like a touchy subject. So people don't really want to ask questions on a live feed and they're a little bit nervous about sending them also to like the email. So if there's any information or like any topics you all want to touch base on, we welcome it at this point. Shy, before uh, we jump into that um, hopefully very exciting conversation, uh, I just wanted to reflect back on the last series of questions around pregnancy and fertility. Uh, we do worry about of course, developmental abnormalities and genetic issues such as with Down syndrome. Down syndrome risk absolutely does increase with maternal age. Um, but there are so many, so many other things that we can do to promote a healthy pregnancies. And that's stuff that we've learned over the last, you know, many, many years. Um, a potentially, you know, conceiving woman uh, should not have alcohol, for example, at that time. Uh, no smoking, uh, tobacco, certainly. No smoking, anything else at that point, either avoiding drugs, remaining well hydrated, and having a, a prenatal vitamin, uh, all very, very important. So maintenance of overall health is going to make for the best maternal and child outcomes. And then again, preparing uh, to be able to breastfeed uh, for uh, several months after the baby is born is can be a single best thing for moms and babies' health as as well. So I just want to mention that it's not just about the age factor. So many other things that are actually in our control at any age uh, that we have the ability to modify. I just wanted to jump in because connected to what Dr. Khan said is also the importance of a woman's health before pregnancy. So we talk a lot about birth control and we talk about during the pregnancy, but we don't talk about the fact that it's important to be healthy before, during preconception, before you have a baby. So um, monitoring what your food intake is, maintaining your weight, continuing to exercise, doing those things so that you are healthy enough to have a healthy pregnancy. And um, planning is also another part. Like, 
for so many years, we didn't plan having a baby. You just had sex and had a baby. But there's the ability now to think about that, to consider what do you want in your life? What do you want to do? You want to go to school? You want to get a job? You want a career? What is it you want to do? So there are times and there are places um, that have consultation around family planning where you can have a conversation that looks at, okay, so in five years, I want to have two children. How are you going to space them? And it's important that there's 18 months or more between babies. In other words, you don't get pregnant and then get pregnant right away. You should give your body time to heal and regroup in terms of being ready to carry another child. So there's opportunities for people to really think about whether or not they want to have children, when they want to have children, and how many children they want to have. And what are those things that we need to do if I don't want to have a child yet? Um, I think we already referenced birth control, but there's a whole chart that you can pull up online um, through the CDC that gives you the effectiveness of the different forms of birth control. And as um, Dr. Khan mentioned, um, the long-acting reversible contraceptives like the IUD and the implant are the ones that women can use or people can use in terms of delaying that pregnancy, having that birth control removed, and feeling really confident that they're not going to get pregnant. But you also have to pick the birth control that works for you. If you don't want something inserted in your vagina, then that's not what you want. If you don't want something inserted under your arm, then that's not what you want. If you're not going to remember to go back in three months to get your shot, maybe depot's not the one. So you have to know what's going to work for you. And so it's really good to plan to have a consultation with someone so that you understand what your choice is and how you're making that decision. I think with the um, like touch, when you touch base on like the different types of birth control, I think it's the side effects that make a lot of people just kind of run from it. You know, like you know, abnormal periods, weight gain. You know, women sometimes we can be a little bit vain, so it's like anything that's going to make you gain weight. Not that a baby would make you gain weight, but at the same time of just not <laughs> wanting to gain the weight. Um, you know, ended up getting like facial hair. It's just like a lot of different things that play a part. So you do have to be very conscious of like reading the side effects to know what is going to affect you because sometimes it might be like, okay, maybe you just need to use condoms if you don't want to gain that extra 75 pounds and get a beard. That might be your birth control. You might have a beard at that point. But it's, it's just like a lot with that. And to chime, in, agree. <laughs> to chime in, um, let's talk about that what what is spermicide and does it still exist right we have birth control pills or patches or iud's for women and condoms is spermicide still a thing and how effective is it sure so um still a thing not very popular not very effective um, and again we're only talking about birth control and not sti prevention uh, so typically certain things which honestly have kind of fallen by the wayside the sponge, remember that? Uh, that was out for a while. Uh, still back, back in action, but uh, not not incredibly effective. The cervical cap, um, things that we heard about at some point, um, you know, tough to use, not not that effective. The diaphragm, not that effective. So uh, spermicides kind of falls into that category as well. Uh, as I think Shai pointed out, folks worry about some kind of side effects. I'll mention that any product which is FDA approved 
is required to lift side effects that a certain percentage of people had whom the product was tested on initially. So just because it's listed as side effect, it just means, you know, up to one to 5% of people may have had that side effect. That means 95% of people may not have had the side effect, or it could be very common, meaning up to 10% may have had it. That still means a lot of people probably didn't. So I think it's fairly individualized what one chooses. Um, Weight gain, for example, with birth control, that can vary, whether what kind of hormone the birth control has. And it's so specific. When again, to specific questions around any one of these methods, happy to talk more about that. But there are quite a few out there. Um, as Dr. Brown said, it's, you know, it's, it's our bodies. We choose what to, what to put in them uh, and, and who puts it in. Um, and I think all that is, uh, that's very important to consider. But for women, certainly, there's never been as many uh, birth control options as, uh, as, as there are now. Okay, and then to speak to, I'm sorry, Dr. G, did you want to, okay, um, this is for my LGBTQI plus community and the poly community, right, who, who can be heterosexual or LGBTQI plus, um, there are ways in which, or maybe they're not educated, and this is a question that I, that I received, what is the best way for um, STI prevention, because we have lesbians that do, that um, cannot use a condom, um, or females, condom, condom still a thing, because there's tribbing, right, and scissoring, and then we have the poly community, where there are multiple um, sex partners, so let's talk about the best way, and the, um, the most effective way for for that particular, um, those particular communities to prevent STIs. Uh, so I, I can certainly start there. So let's just say, again, I think it, one has to break it down to um, who the owner is of what kind of body parts and what one is typically doing with them. And what, if any conditions, those body parts happen to have on them to begin with. So the best prevention is, of course, screening to begin with, knowing what you're, what you're going in with. In the, in the poly community, um, one is actually fairly, folks are actually fairly rigorous about maintaining safer sex practices. Because again, these tend to be closed communities that tend to be partners who are known and trusted. And so folks are actually very concerned about maintaining their sexual health and sexual hygiene. And so folks will, you know, my patients will come in, they'll, they will get routinely tested uh, far more so than for other folks who are not part of such communities. So I think that's the first step, knowing where you are in your, uh, in your life and knowing what STIs you may or may not be at risk for. I think that's step one. In cases, as Kiana, where you mentioned, for example, uh, in a lesbian couple, um, they may be open uh, and they may be partnered with other, um, uh, let's just say, cisgendered uh, men or with women. Um, what does that look like in terms of risk? Screening, of course, still the most most uh, the, the the most important one. Uh, assuming that they cannot use any kind of condom, then that certainly would for HIV prevention. One can certainly think about PrEP or PEP. Um, uh, if any of them are HIV positive or discordant, one can think about that. If they have HSV suppression with this appropriate antiviral medication. Um, in the absence of barrier methods, one simply has to be really careful and um, uh, you know, screen one's partners uh, before engaging with them. Uh, that's probably the biggest prevention is, is knowledge in this case. So on that, because there is, we talked earlier about shame and judgment, there's a lot of judgment against, you know, not being in a monogamous relationship and having multiple partners. I mean, how often other than, you know, um, I would say someone that we would identify as a cheater, right? And going outside of their relationship from these open relationships, um, 
in these different, you know, poly um, communities. How how common is that? You know, is that something that's really common? Uh, I, I'm sure Dr. Uh, Imani Willis and Dr. Brown uh, uh, and perhaps yourself, Dr. G, have experience with actual statistics. Um, you know, I don't know the statistics on this. We tend not to capture sexual health, sexual practices very well on any kind of survey methodology. And perhaps that's because of a, I don't know, maybe a professional and demographic uh, shame to to address these topics, which is which is in itself a shame. Um, I will say it's a lot more common than than we think it might be on the surface. Uh, any community um, uh, which is relatively underground, so to speak, which feels judged and which feels shamed, will not want to reveal itself. Will not want to reveal its behaviors. Uh, but certainly in, in the in the patient universe, where somebody comes into the office, they have a private, confidential conversation with the, with myself or another physician. At that point, it's all out on the table, and so we hear about poly communities not infrequently. And I think it's just about asking. You know, ask ten people uh, what they think about uh, poly and what whether they've seen uh, ENM, another word, ethical non-monogamy, ENM communities. What that might look like. Uh, they will say, yeah, I know someone in, uh, who, who is, uh, who's part of that community. One can go on Facebook. You can find groups that, that are, uh, that are uh, catered to the community. Um, one can just go on the internet and see what's out there. There are a variety of places. One can meet people online that are part of the same community through the meeting apps as well. A topic we haven't touched on yet, but maybe we'll get some questions about that. Uh, so in brief, a lot more common than we think. Virtually any practice that you might think of as so-called uh, taboo or shameful or previously undiscussed, it's a lot more common than we think. I received a question from someone, but before I ask it, Amani or Diane, did you want to touch on any of that? I know that Amani, you've been a sex therapist, so you may be familiar with poly, with the poly community. Diane, I'm not sure. No, we good? Okay. Um, someone circled back around to myths baths, vinegar, women should bathe in vinegar. <laughs> and also um, she says that her husband is not, um, does not feel secure in taking baths and feels like that it's just for women mm. and she wants him to do it because it's clean, it's cleanly. So what are your thoughts on that? Vinegar baths, baths for men, or even just cleansing baths for men, women, LGBTQI, you know, heterosexual, poly. I guess from the health perspective, I'll, you know, I'll jump in there. I think, uh, well, first of all, a complete vinegar bath sounds ex expensive. Um, and uh, uh, that would be certainly the case of apple cider vinegar, a smell I cannot stand. Uh, that that would be also, speaking of odors, that would be an interesting odor to carry around with you. Um, you know, vinegar is acetic acid. Uh, it is not something that the skin likes very much to be applied to it. We use vinegar very sparingly for certain you know, one or two medical procedures, for example, we use acetic acid, uh, but uh, vinegar is not something I would typically encourage folks to uh, to bathe in, um, and certainly uh, has no health benefits that I'm aware of from the perspective of either uh, vinegar-related douches or any kind of vinegar baths. Um, from the perspective of baths in general, uh, you know, I have no objection to folks folks bathing as long as the skin tolerates it, as long as what you put in the water um, is something that your skin agrees with, and as long as you're not marinating yourself in your nether regions and therefore you know for hours and hours uh, there doesn't seem to be a, a particular issue with doing that um i think when one is taking a bath together 
that may be a little more interesting when one is talking about perhaps sex in a bath and what does that look like. And at that point, there's sometimes the potential, especially when one is in a pool or when one in, is in water, for uh, bacteria to be able to uh, to get into the vulvar area in particular, and there may be concerns about that. Um, again, though, that would have to involve a pretty long time to be immersed in said bath. Um, but I think on, on the whole, really no particular health concerns with just plain water and uh, and a regular uh, you know soap or shampoo kind of thing shouldn't shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, that vinegar, I'm thinking that we'll be making an appointment to see Dr. Khan with that vinegar in, in that bag. Like the whole pH off. I don't know. That just seems like a lot. Maybe it helps cleanse off the Yoni steam thing. It might counteract it. I don't know. Yes. But, you know, I had a question. Like, um, back in the day, when the female condoms first came out, that was the hardest thing to try to use ever. It was just, it was horrible. <laughs> so, I think a lot of people probably, I think, I, I believe they probably still sell them, but I don't think people are really using them like that because that was a task in itself because you had to, like, squeeze it and insert it was just it was just too much it's like some things are easier for females like when we're talking about like birth control and reversible things like um you know i i work with someone that did have their tubes tied and they had it reversed and it just looked painful by the way that she was walking around i never knew that you could reverse it but it's just like you know some things are made easier for females but that female condom i would give it a complete thumbs down i tried to use it one time and it did not work well for me i don't know if i need one else so it is, it, was, it is and was kind of challenging in that um, if you are, if a woman or a person is not comfortable inserting something inside themselves, because it's, it's a little bit more complicated than like a tampon. Um, and you're right, you have to squeeze it. And if a woman or a person used a diaphragm, that was the similar kind of folding action to insert it in, 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 the, in the vagina. However, Part of it hung outside your body. So, uh, for those of you that haven't seen this, um, it's a it's a, a long cylindrical like mm, uh, not latex uh, polyurethane, um, and it's inserted in, in the vagina, and then the rest of the actual condom hangs outside of the vagina. So, something inserted into the vagina has to go in between this round circular cylindrical thing and you're right because at, at that time when it first came out people thought use two condoms so the male had a condom and the female had a condom and that does not work um it also ha you have to be careful when you're taking it out as well so um and it and you're right there were some complications i believe it's still on the market but i think everybody is different and Everybody has to find what works for them, what's comfortable for them. Um, and that's the best form of birth control for you. Or in that case, that one also protects against STIs, as does the male condom. But you're right. It was an awkward device. And um, it didn't get a lot of publicity in terms of um, positive publicity around it. But it was still um, on the list of possible uses for birth control. So we do have a question. Um, one of the viewers wanted to know about pineapples and pineapple juice. 
uh, eating or drinking pineapples, does that change the smell and or the taste of the vaginal uh, well, your vaginal walls, like your vagina, or the um, ejaculation of the male? So they were asking questions in regards to pineapples and pineapple juice and the myth around that. Sure. Yeah. Anecdotal evidence seems to indicate the pineapple thing has been around for a long time. Um, it's not going to turn, you know, one's vaginal secretions or, or ejaculations into, into tasting and smelling like pineapple. So, you know, folks shouldn't be, shouldn't be expecting that. But um, in terms of uh, a slight, uh, a slight smell, or um, I'm not sure about taste, but certainly the smell part of it does appear to come through from, from anecdotal reports. Predictably, nobody has done a case control scientific study on uh, pineapple juice and ejaculation yet, but um, uh, but it does seem to, that one in particular does seem to come through. The interesting part is I usually get questions about pineapple juice. Nobody's ever asked me about grapefruit juice or orange juice or any other kind of juice, but maybe something about pineapple, which does it, it, it does seem to, um, it does seem to be circulating and people, people have, uh, people have, have said that, yes, it does change the smell. Now, it's funny that you said grapefruit juice. We also have a question about grapefruiting and should they try it? I think it's coming from the movie Girlfriend, uh, Girls Trip. And they use the grapefruit during, I guess, sexual activity. So they, so the viewer wanted to know, is that a good or bad idea? I don't know if you saw the movie, but. Well, wait a second. Before any of you answer that question, let's think about the scene in, in Girls Trip when he came running out of the room screaming. Screaming. Grapefruit and it was burning. <laughs> I think you got your answer, sir or ma'am. <laughs> yeah. I never tried that. I never had the desire to either. Do we need to explain what that is, Amani? Um, go ahead, Amani. Oh, sorry. I say I. I think a good alternative would be like. Um, I apologize. I don't know what it's called, but there's like a sex toy that you can use um, and you, you can add lube to it. So it's like an alternative to the grapefruit. So you're not, you know, burning yourself, but you probably get the same sensation. It's kind of like the Gigi. Remember the Gigi? I was about to say, you're talking about Gigi. Talking about Gigi. Gigi <laughs> is like the grapefruit, right? It already comes with the, with the hole in it and you can put the lube inside. And if you, so back in the day, they would have these sex toy parties, right? And Gigi was like number one on a sex toy list. So a woman or a man could close their eyes and put their fingers out. And this sex toy um, person that, that did the um, presentations will come around and put this Gigi over your finger and you could literally feel the tightness and the wetness of the inside of this toy. So Gigi is probably safer because they use the water-based or the silicone-based lubrications rather than a grapefruit that is acidic, right? And um, creates that running sensation. So you're right, Amani. It's Gigi, y'all. Gigi. <laughs> well, and, and to that point, we used to have, even, I think they slowed down even before COVID, um, the parties, right? So where do people go now? And where can they go safely? Because Amazon, they sell everything. I shouldn't mention that brand, but you know, that <laughs> the online vendor. But some things may not be good quality. And that's like, what are some recommendations for some people that are listening? Well, I know when I've been asleep, uh, Adam and Eve has been running an uh, infomercial about sex toys every night. It's like one day I woke up like, why am I hearing this? They are telling you what the thing does, how it works. They, they have a whole campaign. You leave your TV on three, six or 10. 
I guarantee you by 2.30 a.m., you're hearing about Adam and Eve and their uh, secret packaging. Your neighbors won't know what's coming in, in your mailbox. So they are advertising like really, really like hardcore at this point. And so I guess the question is, if we can't authenticate um, a brand, do it, does it go back to the cleansing of the toys? How if we don't know if it's safe or not, is cleansing, cleansing, cleansing the number one thought? And then also too with that, um, Kiana too is like the household things that people are using. Like for years, we heard about women using cucumbers and crazy like different things of that sort. So it's like one of those things that might need to be touched based on too. It's like when I'm thinking of like anything entering your body, I'm automatically thinking, you put that in there, you'll get BV. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> That's just my thoughts. That's probably a pretty good rule to to think about. Is you know. Um, uh, just to go back to the to the sex toys discussion, I think yes, you're right, uh, Doctor G. You know, how can one validate uh, you know the effectiveness when you don't have a community anymore to be able to connect with in person? But the community, I think, has shifted online. You mentioned one brand, Adam and Eve, which uh, which is a you know popular seller of all sorts of adult entertainment and sex toys for for decades. Actually, there's a couple of others as well. There's Love Honey, which is uh, favored by by women as well. There's uh, Lilo L E L O dot com which has um, high-end uh, sex toys, the kind of Swedish, they, they considered the Ikea of sex toys. Um, I have no stock or personal interest in any of these uh, companies. I just mentioned them because you Google them and you'll, you'll find their names. Um, but I think the question about hygiene is, is, is really important. Whatever you use, whether it's something from the internet or from your fridge, uh, make sure it's hygienic. And if it does happen to be from your fridge, make sure that, you know, just some common sense. What would this do if it breaks off inside of us? Now, it just, doesn't just apply to to women. It applies to men uh, who may use this for anal insertion. And for anybody like myself who's worked in an ER before, you know, pulling things out of uh, people's butts who that they didn't know that, yeah, I, you know, cucumber that breaks in half in, in, in inside your anus, that is not going to be very amusing to be able to pull out. And what does that feel like? And trust me, that's one of the perhaps the easier ones that we've had to deal with, right? So just a little common sense around that I think would be helpful. Um, it probably is worth repeating that... Um, being under the influence, um, whether it's alcohol or other drugs, when one is experimenting or uh, whether with oneself or with the partner, not a good idea because then one gets into making some questionable decisions that you might uh, you might have some regret around, you know, in my ER a few hours later. Uh, so a little common sense goes a long way. Okay, now we are down to three minutes of our, our podcast. So do you, any of the panelists have anything they want to share, add, or like just some information um, to give um, our viewers or even any inspiration, you know, like it's okay to talk about sex. It's okay to talk about masturbation. Like also too, when it, let me ask this question for those of us that are watching and that are viewing or that, that are in attendance about like children. Okay, we talked about masturbation. Like we, when we have the talk about sex, we talk about you know protecting yourself. You don't want babies. You want you don't want to get an STI. How do we welcome in the conversation in regards to masturbation to our adolescents? Sometimes it's important to talk about privacy. Not that, some, that something you shouldn't do, but doing things in private. Things especially that. Um, other people might not understand uh, and to realize that there can be times when young people can have that level of privacy so that they can explore themselves. Um, 
especially having books um, that young people can pick up and um, read or ask questions from, take opportunities during movies to educate and start the conversation. So there's a number of ways that young people can be engaged in the conversation. Sorry, I know we're almost done. Um, I was thinking about that because that was brought up earlier and there's a good resource on Instagram. It's called Sex Positive underscore families and it has a lot of helpful resources for families to try to have that um, conversation around sexuality with their uh, their children as well as Dr. Lex she's another good resource for um, uh, for uh, parents who are wanting to have those conversations with their children also she's like a advocate for excuse me advocate for um, breastfeeding and you know just having a uh, healthy sexuality in the family so I just wanted to mention those two resources for anyone who's interested in that awesome so in closing is there any like um, gems you want to give us any advice or anything like that to any of our panelists feel free I would say since this is an internet forum to consider some of the podcasts that are out there as well, which are quite good. Um, and, uh, you know, we can certainly put them out later on through the, uh, through the uh, Freely Life Services uh, group and, uh, you know, stay, stay tuned, stay healthy, stay sexy. I like that. Stay sexy. We will list resources. If you go to Freely Life Services website, which is www.freelyfoundation.org, there is a tab that says resources slash supporters, we will have resources listed. And if anyone is experiencing crises behind the discussion of sexual health, um, the crisis hotline number, which is actually the universal number for, you, for the United States is 800-273-8255. There are crisis numbers specific to each state. Um, that you can find on Google, but this is for the United States, 1-800-273-8255. And before we disconnect, if any of our panelists, again, our moderator, producer, um, Dr. G, do you have anything else you want to say before I end this with a little bit of upbeat, um, a, a little bit of upbeat music to kind of set the tone before we leave? No, thank you to our panelists. You all were amazing. We really, truly appreciate it. I would say to anyone watching or listening, if you have topics of interest as we plan out these months, send them our way. Um, you know, send us an email or on Facebook or Instagram. Yes. And before we end, if all of our panelists could give their like, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, where people can reach you. I mean, I guess like with the open discussion, they may be more comfortable with talking to you. So it might bring some clients and patients your way. So if you can please just like give your information um, before we end out, that'd be great. Glad to do it. I'll, I'll start. Uh, probably the best way to reach me is through Freely themselves, because that's the group that sponsored this. Um, uh, I personally have a closed practice, but our colleagues in the community, Christiana Care, St. Francis, uh, Bay Health, and all of our terrific parts in the area, they have family physicians, OB-GYNs, urologists, always glad to help their general numbers for them. We'll put the links out on the foundation website as well. So thank you very much. I guess the easiest way to reach me is by um, LinkedIn. It's Diane, two N's and Diane, and R and Brown with an E on the end of it, all one word, and you'll find me. 
Um, I can be contacted on my personal Instagram or on LinkedIn. Also, my Instagram handle is at blackradiance underscore one zero. And then on LinkedIn, my name is Imani with an I, um, Wills. Awesome. And we thank you. I've learned a lot just sitting and listening, even though I'm asking questions for other people. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wanted to know that, too. So this has been great. So I thank you all. Um, for all your expertise and knowledge in the situations and questions and uh, just like just on, on sex and uh, sexually transmitted disease. Well, I'm sorry, infections. <laughs> that sounds better. So we thank you so much. Um, we didn't get into like everything, like some questions we had is kind of like you kind of touched base on them. So we kept on rolling, but this was a great experience and I was happy to be a part. And I'm thankful that you guys did uh, agree to be a part of our, our podcast today. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you.